Welcome back to the Armor Men's Health Hour with Dr. Mystery and Donna Lee. Welcome back to the Armor Men's Health Hour. I'm Dr. Mystery, your host, here with my co-host, Donna Lee. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Sunday. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday, everybody. What do you think, Donna? What do you think one of the scariest diagnoses uh, a, a person can get is? I don't even like to say the words. It's the C word, the isn't C it? The C word. Cancer. Rhymes with panther. Rhymes with panther. <laughs> dancer. Throughout uh, my career as a urologist, cancer has served to be one of the most difficult things to get our arms around because mm -hmm. sometimes you think you have it defeated, you have the right surgery, the right medicine, the right techniques, the right preventative strategies, and then it just finds a way to just come around and bite you in the butt. That's just butt cancer. But there are other <laughs> kinds of cancer. That, that bite you elsewhere. As urologists, we deal with um, a number of different types of cancer. We deal with bladder cancer, prostate cancer, uh, kidney cancer, testicle cancer, even penile cancer. Uh, but we also deal with cancers that are not related to the genitourinary system, but affect the genitourinary system. Mm -hmm. So cancers that affect uh, the internal anatomy of the kidneys or the ureters or the bladder. And also, uh, as part of our special practice, we deal with the side effects of treatment often. I'm really happy to have uh, a great partner of our practice, uh, Dr. Michelle Ashworth from Texas Oncology here today. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me here. So cancer uh, has really changed in terms of how we treat it. And I thought for our listeners, uh, I trust you tremendously. You, you take care of my godfather. He's a charmer. He is a pain in the butt. <laughs> um, he doesn't even listen to my show. Oh, he will and, now. And I'm going to call him. I hate right it. Now. We're going to. And uh, and I can say that he had a kidney cancer that was, um, that was spread. And now we are using different types of chemotherapy. And I thought it would be really interesting to share with our listeners chemotherapy that may be different from what they think of uh, as traditional chemotherapy. But a little background on you. You went to University of Texas. You were at Baylor College of Medicine for medical school, which I have heard mm. <laughs> anecdotally is the best medical school mm. in the world. I don't know why you've heard that. I don't know. I will also tell you something, Michelle, that you don't know. <laughs> Lay it on me. I was also <laughs> class president. Oh my goodness. What a small world. Yes. You were class president. You were class president in 2006. Is that right? And I was class president yes. in 1996. Oh. <laughs> and I was a pioneer. And uh, you, you trained amazingly in a sophisticated place in California at UCSF. And now here to bring your talents here. So, you know, when I think of chemotherapy, and I think most people think of chemotherapy, they think about ports in their neck. They think about high doses of highly caustic chemicals. They think of losing their hair. They think of being sick and vomiting and all these things. Maybe you could talk to us about how has the, the nature of quote-unquote chemotherapy or treatment, systemic treatment of cancer changed? And what can people expect nowadays? You know, if you think about the origins of chemotherapy and how it was discovered, there's a fantastic book on this topic, The Emperor of All Maladies. And it talks about how soldiers who were exposed to chemical agents during war, like mustard gas, other agents along that line, came back with empty bone marrow. And a scientist researcher got the idea, maybe he could treat his child patients with leukemia with a chemical in this class and take care of the leukemia in their bone marrow. Wow. Hmm. And so if you think about that's where these chemicals were discovered, how there's such a narrow window between what is a helpful amount and what is a toxic amount, you can really understand, you know, the sensation of being treated with something that's a deadly poison in very careful doses. We've now discovered more about the biology of cancer and how the cells actually work because they start out as our own cells and then they get out of control and divide relentlessly. We can now target cells with medications that come in a pill form and they don't affect the whole body the way chemotherapy does. They target a specific growth switch 
in the cell that might be stuck in the on position. And we have immunotherapy drugs that allow your own immune system to recognize the cancer cells and kill them. They have totally different side effect profiles. The way they're given is different. The impact on your day-to-day life is different. And in many cases, they're so much more effective than chemotherapy. You know, this idea of chemotherapy is really just a poison that we're hoping kills the cancer faster than it kills you. Right. And there are so many side effects that people can kind of expect as a natural part of that. These immunotherapies, they have complicated names that are harder to remember sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're given by IV infusion, sometimes by pill. What cancers in your experience have evolved the most from kind of a changing paradigm in how we're treating them? I would start with melanoma because that's where my training was in the research department at UCSF in the melanoma department when those immunotherapy drugs were coming into clinical trials. And if you think about stage four melanoma, that used to have an incredibly grim prognosis. But with the advent of immunotherapy, We have patients who were diagnosed at stage four who are walking around with no evidence of disease years later, thanks Hmm. to immunotherapy. And so the drugs are being used now in multiple types of cancer, but in melanoma and kidney cancer, those are two cancers that are very closely regulated by the immune system. The immune therapies have been just groundbreaking. Studying um, all of these different kind of cancer therapies over the years, I felt like we were really focused on just finding different doses and regimens of poison for so many years. Now, although we kind of speak negatively about the experience of going through chemotherapy, it is absolutely the case that the caustic and chemical agents that we've been using have saved many lives and and done many positive things. But really more hopeful, brighter-eyed for the future, this idea of targeted therapy for cancer. And if, if patients have cancer, what are some ways that they can get kind of involved with, participate in in trials and learn about these things? You can take it on yourself to check out clinicaltrials.gov. That can be a little challenging to navigate until you've got the hang of all the jargon. But I think a medical oncologist is a great resource, a urologist, another partner in their community. In Austin, we're really fortunate. We have a great community of physicians who have been opening and treating patients on clinical trials for decades. We have phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials open here. And so you would want to be a little more specific than Googling. You would want to go to a reputable website or talk to your own physician. But the first and most appropriate treatment for any patient with a new diagnosis is going to be evaluation for participation in a clinical trial. So one of the things that I try to really tout um, on this show is the notion of finding the doctor that's right for you Mm -hmm. and going for that second opinion. And I think that when you are diagnosed with cancer, you probably hang on the person that you see first like a vine in the jungle. And and, and you don't want to let go of that person and you don't want to seem unappreciative or anything like that. But I think that there are different approaches, right? Different oncologists may have different like philosophies and how they approach different things. Maybe you could speak to that. Yeah, I call it there's a lid for every pot um, (laughs) because, you know, sometimes the opposite is true where the person who has to break the bad news is the one you never want to see again. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so I have seen that happen too. Um, Sometimes there's just not a good personality fit. For example, there's a couple of different um, philosophical approaches to the doctor-patient relationship. There's paternalistic, which is where you kind of just tell the patient what's going to happen and what they should do. And then there's a more autonomy-focused approach where you work together as a team to find the best treatment plan for them. And the downside of that approach is some people might find option overload, like they just want to be told what is the right thing to do. That's right. And, 
you know, it may be geography or where someone trained what you have in common as human beings, you know, how you feel that they care about you, how they treat you professionally. I would say that it's incredibly important to find a good match in your oncologist if you have the luxury of choosing between more than one, um, because this is going to be a difficult enough process. And it's a long journey. And it's a long journey. I mean, you have to, you know, if if the first things you do don't work, you're going to have to give secondary opinions. Mm -hmm. The oncologist might think that they're kind of now beyond what they can do and will refer you somewhere. That relationship is so critical, and it matters more than just to the patient. It's also that patient's family, too, Mm -hmm. that's really depending on great advice and a great relationship. To our listeners out there, I would definitely encourage you that if you have something that requires the use or the consultation of a medical oncologist and you don't necessarily feel that comfortable with them, you know, we're doctors, we're professionals, we get it, right? Absolutely. Not Not every relationship's going to work out. And uh, I have to change my way. Some patients like to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. Some patients don't want to be told at all what to do. Mm-hmm. If you're getting advice that you're not completely comfortable with, then a second opinion may be the right thing for you. Yeah, there's not really a downside. It's just an exploration. That's right. It's an exploration. And uh, I've been really uh, amazed at how quickly medical oncologists can get my patients in. So I I really thank you for taking care of our patients. Uh, We're going to be right back after these messages. Uh, Donna, why don't you tell people how to get a hold of us or to ask questions of Dr. Ashworth and of us? That's right. You can send us an email to armormenshealth at gmail.com. You can call us during the week at 512-238-0762 see our website at armormenshealth.com but again email us at armormenshealth at gmail.com you can ask dr mystery a question dr ashworth a question we'll get the question right over to her and get, get you an answer right away we have four locations in the austin area round rock north austin south austin and dripping springs and um again call us 512-238-0762 during the week and you can even ask for me we'll be right back after these messages Dr. Mystery wants to hear from you. Email questions to armormenshealth at gmail.com. We'll be right back with the Armor Men's Health Hour. Welcome back to the Armor Men's Health Hour with Dr. Mystery and Donna Lee. Welcome back to the Armor Men's Health Hour. This is Dr. Mystery, your host, here with my co-host as always, Donna Lee. That's right. Welcome back. Today we're joined by uh, Dr. Michelle Ashworth with Text Oncology. Thanks a lot mm-hmm. for coming back for our second segment there, Michelle. It's a delight to be here. <laughs> in our in our first segment, <laughs> she's we... She's super cute, she too. Is, she sounds cute. Nice. She looks nice. cute. She's very nice. If you want a super cute, smart oncologist, Dr. Ashworth is your, your gal. Well, I'll tell you that uh, my godfather is a crotchety character <laughs> he's a, sometimes. He's a character. He's a wonderful person, somebody who um, I would lay down for. And so uh, when he was being treated for cancer, we really wanted to make sure that he had the right fit. And it was so, I really appreciate you seeing him and really giving him uh, advice for his uh, for his advanced cancer. And uh, he just uh, he just loves you. And I thought that would be great to have you on the show. It's been a total pleasure, and it's kind of an example of what we were speaking about earlier about finding the right fit and negotiating with the patient what's the best course for them. That's Mm -hmm. right. I I found it really rewarding. Because he's kind of a manly man. I would think he might want like a 
mainly Dr. Guy, so I'm so glad that he's We're not gonna tell <laughs> warmed him. up. He doesn't listen to the show anyway. Well, he's so a hunter-fisher kind of guy. Luckily. So. <laughs> you know, I can lay down the lawn That's right. right. I bet, I bet. What I wanted to talk to you about today was something that uh, I've never really heard a conversation on, but I'm a big, you know, I, I deal with this issue quite a bit. And this is a men's health show, but I wanted to talk about breast cancer breast cancer and patients that are going through chemotherapy for breast cancer. And we're not going to talk about breast cancer in men. I want to talk about breast cancer in the wives, girlfriends, daughters, mothers, um, who are target audiences for this show. Because I think that a lot of times men don't really understand what a Mm -hmm. woman's going to go through when they go through chemotherapy. I deal with a lot of the sexual side effects that breast cancer treatment can lead to in women. And so we have, as part of our advanced female sexual dysfunction program in our practice, um, we treat um, severe vaginal dryness, low libido, all the body changes, the body image issues that come with with surgery for breast cancer. And I think that uh, a lot of times uh, my impression is that men uh, don't necessarily know what to expect. They feel uninformed and so they can't comment on what's going on in the room. Even though couples come in together to deal with cancer, I feel a lot of times the wife is kind of left on her own because the husband doesn't want to necessarily make a mistake. Maybe comment on that and and, and let's have a conversation about that. Absolutely. I think this is a fascinating way to approach this. Um, In many relationships, one of the partners will have more of a tendency to be a fixer or a doer, right? And I don't want to be too stereotypical, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, but you see that in partners where one of them is kind of the take action partner. And when you're in a situation where you're not the expert, you're taking your loved one, the person you care about most in the whole world, to another expert, and there's nothing you can really do or fix, and you don't have deep expertise in this, you can feel a bit lost. And how do you support your partner going through this? For sure. And for a person going through a diagnosis of breast cancer, everyone's reaction can be so different. You know, some people really feel the threat to their self-image based on the cosmetic aspects of having breast cancer and breast cancer surgery. Other people, it's the first time they've ever had a health issue. And so they have this kind of deep shock at that kind of shot across the bow of their mortality. And it's not necessarily that it's breast cancer. It's just that it's the first time they've ever really had any issue. And facing their mortality is the big issue they need support with. The other thing that I find people having challenges negotiating, everything that we do in oncology is a matter of balancing risk and benefit. So there are actually very few absolutes. There are some, you know, you must do this or we are you know, going to be in a big pickle real soon. And then there's, you know, you've had breast cancer, your risk of recurrence or metastasis in the next nine years is 6%. If I give you tamoxifen or anastrozole, a medication to modulate estrogen in your body, I can reduce your risk of recurrence by half. So if you say by half, that sounds really great. But if you're dealing with very small numbers and medications that have significant side effects, it's important to help women see they have permission to not do a treatment that they don't tolerate, that ruins their life, that causes unmanageable side effects. And that's another conflict partners can have about deciding what their priorities are as far as quality of life versus the objective risk of recurrence of a cancer that can affect the duration of your life. I'd really like to re-talk about that and emphasize that point. For us in urology, breast uh, prostate cancer is something that we have a lot of different options for treatment. When I try to present options for treatment that could cause side effects such as incontinence or impotence and other side effects that may not do that but may have a less effective treatment, men will try to balance lifestyle, how they're going to live along with the expected outcome of their cancer treatment. But when wives or 
daughters' sons are allowed to weigh in, they would almost rather just do a kind of slash and burn. I I don't care what happens to him. (laughs) I want his cancer gone. It reminds me of like, you know, these patients that would even have limbs cut off or their entire bottom half of their body cut off at MD Anderson when I was training there, mm-hmm. you know, for, for treatment. These are people that will, you know, when, when the family gets involved, they kind of want you there, whether or not you feel like you or not. And when it comes to breast cancer, there are options. I try to share with folks, for, for many patients, it's more of a marathon than a sprint. There are different levels of urgency. Um, some breast cancer is very slow. Some breast cancer is very fast and overwhelming, and we have to treat it aggressively. I try to share that this is your situation. This is your journey. It's not going to be the same as someone in your family or someone in your Facebook group. And I share that with their family as well, because they all come into the room with their own history and experiences. And some of them may have lost a family member to an aggressive breast cancer. Some of them may have seen someone live with metastatic breast cancer for eight years. And some of them may have seen someone who had a different cancer get intense surgery and chemotherapy and radiation and the suffering that went along with that. Someone else may have seen someone treated for cancer 20 years ago and things have changed. I try to make sure people understand, you know, cancer, it's the C word, it's scary. Sometimes it can become a different C word, which is chronic. And it's an issue that people live with. And so they're living. So we have to take care of their lives. We have to take care of them as a whole person and their function and consider them as a whole person and not put the cancer at the top of the list ahead of all of their other priorities if we have that choice. That's right, because we don't always have that choice. And so understanding the balance between living longer and living at a at a level of comfort and functionality that that you feel that you feel best at i think that not to be too stereotypical but i think that a lot of uh, women might feel like they're betraying their family by not going through the most aggressive treatment at all times you know kind of saying that that if i don't do everything i can to live longer then somehow i'm not Mm. doing what's best for myself but i don't think so i I think that you have to balance the potential impact on bone health, you know, how you feel about yourself, uh, your sexuality, your overall cardiovascular health, because there's a balance. And these types of chronic chemotherapeutic agents may not be the best for everyone. The thing about this journey is that some degree of health change over time is inevitable. 100% of us are going to have to face our mortality. It's how we arrive. When someone is older, perhaps, or more experienced, when someone's lived in their own skin for 50 or 60 or 70 years, they have a very clear idea of who they are and how they want to live and how they want to spend their remaining decades. And people on the outside may not have insight into that. Someone who's younger, someone who's a different gender, someone who's never been ill or disabled. And so it's really important, I think, to listen and support your partner and hear their concerns and not push for aggressive, aggressive treatment beyond what even the doctor may be recommending. Every situation is different. Acute leukemia is one thing. Metastatic breast cancer where you may have a good quality of life for years is a different thing. I think that's a great message to all those quote unquote fixers out there. I being one of them, you know, you get so scared when your partner's diagnosed with something that, that may take them away from you. You know, you kind of fall into this feeling of, well, whatever the most aggressive thing that we can do that has the highest likelihood of keeping this person around for the longest period of time, regardless of their state of being, make sure that you're listening, truly listening to what your oncologist or your medical professional is telling you. Really weigh and help your partner make that decision and not make them feel overly pressured for um, for overly aggressive treatment. Is that right? Absolutely. Thanks for this really deep discussion on what I think is um, 
because so many cancer discussions and decisions are made as a couple, mm -hmm. whether it be breast cancer, prostate cancer, or whatever. When you have a choice, make sure you understand those choices. You know, get that second opinion from that medical oncologist if you think that uh, your your personalities may not be fitting with the person that you saw first. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Donna, uh, why don't you tell people how to get a hold of us and uh, get questions to us? I would like to throw out that Texas Oncology is like a well-oiled machine. My mom is going there for some treatments and follow-ups, and it's just so amazing. It's so efficient, and it's so big. And we're, we go to the south location, but so thank you on behalf of Texas Oncology for all of that. Um, thank you for, to Dr. Ashworth. If you have any questions for her or Dr. Mystery, email us at armormenshealth at gmail.com. And you can uh, see our website, armormenshealth.com. And then our phone number during the week is 512-238-0762. Again, we have four locations, Round Rock, North Austin, South Austin, and Dripping Springs. And thanks again so much to Dr. Ashworth. And we'll have all this on our Facebook page, armormenshealth.com. And we'll be right back. Thank you. The Armor Men's Health Hour will be right back. If you have questions for Dr. Mystery, email him at armormenshealth at gmail.com. 